Hi, this is Shanna Borman here with Straight Talk and Honest Advice, your podcast about the family law journey, the fears that you have before you file for divorce, what that divorce process looks like, and how you end up on the other side. And today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Linda McLean. Linda, hello. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Good morning. I'm uh, very honored to be here. Thank you so much. And so, Linda, can you tell my viewers what it is that you do, what makes you unique in our family law culture? Uh, I am an attorney. I've been licensed for over 30 years, but about 20 years ago, I decided to change my pathway in the legal community or in the legal process and uh, became a full-time mediator, which means that day in and day out, I work with both sides to litigation in family law cases to try to achieve a an out-of-court settlement for the parties. So, so in that mediation process, Linda, do you talk with both parties in the case? Yes, I uh, different mediators construct their mediation uh, setting in different ways. And in fact, I modify my style and the meeting arrangement according to the needs of the parties or what they want to have uh, in their session. But for the most part, yes, I have folks in separate rooms with their attorneys, both sides, separate rooms. And I spend time talking with them, getting to know them and really getting down to the heart of what they want to have happen as a result of this change in their family dynamic. Well, so I love that. Now, you know, I've talked to you before about the podcast and what we are, or what I'm trying to kind of express to people. And that is essentially, you know, the fears that they have oftentimes before they decide to file for divorce are, are, are fears that, you know, may be not realized after the divorce process is over, but also, you know, fears that may be shared by their spouse. Um, so can can you speak to that since you are able to see both sides? I, I do. I um, I see that people come in. It, it is literally standing on the abyss of the unknown because it's not just changing their relationship. It, in some instances, is changing the relationship with their children and extended family. It is changing the family lifestyle, the financial uh, lifestyle that folks have come to enjoy. Uh, it, all of those things are going to change. Maybe even employment or where you live in the state or in the in the United States could change as an aspect. And all of those things affect how family law litigants face the future. Um, I like to believe that mediation is an opportunity for the litigants themselves to explore those fears and handcraft a solution for their case, which addresses those concerns and negates those negative um, impacts that they fear are coming down the road post-divorce. I, you know, and that's why I think mediation is so important in family law cases. When people are, you know, in this place of fear and place of kind of paralysis almost, you know, looking for what the future, what they want that to look like and and building the steps to get there during the divorce process. I think that's something that can happen in mediation that cannot really happen in court. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, Family law courts are guided by our rules and regulations, the laws of the state of Texas and the procedures for the, the court process. 
and in mediation, all of those things can be set to the side and really talk about what's important to the litigants themselves. Uh, it, it allows the parties themselves to, to shape their destiny and to control the outcome. I mean, I like to say to folks very early in the mediation process, uh, and, and I think it is something that resonates with people, that when you go to the courtroom, you are essentially paying in time away from work, in risk of an out, uh, outcome that is not something that you would have envisioned or wanted or chosen for yourself, and in legal fees and, and other financial uh, stakeholders as part of, or financial commitments as part of the process. And you're paying a stranger, a judge sitting in a black robe or a 12 or a six person jury to decide for you and your partner what the future looks like. And to me, that's counterintuitive. There is no long-term satisfaction when a stranger tells you how you're going to raise your children or what your financial future looks like. That is so true. I mean, who who knows better what your children need than you? Absolutely. Those decisions need to be kept with the family. Courts can address those concerns uh, very uh, quickly and efficiently if that's your choice and you can't get a resolution at mediation. But uh, long-term satisfaction, I think, comes with people who have shaping and input into what that process looks like, what that outcome looks like. Right. I mean, buy-in. Would you, I mean, you know, it's just it's all about buy-in, right? You know, if I have a say in what my future is going to look like, I'm much more likely to be, you know, compliant with maybe the rules that that I try to set up, or I'm much more likely to to you know understand and and believe that this is best for my children rather than resist and resent it the whole time. Well, and Ken, uh, I know that you see this all the time. I saw it in the early years of my career as a family law litigator. Uh, People go into the courtroom with very preconceived notions that are not just uh, societal, but they are cultural. And uh, even the movies we watch um, shape what we believe the divorce process should look like. And when it's all said and done, the things that litigants say about one another in order to gain an edge in the custody uh, assessment by the court absolutely destroys the ability to then come out of the courthouse and be co-parents. How can you right. be That's flexible, so cooperative, and and uh, model for your children a loving co-parenting relationship when you've just said these things or had things said about you in the courtroom as part of the custody determination? That, that is so true. You know, sometimes you they make wounds. We, we, as family law lawyers, you know, you're right. We have to use the facts that our clients give us to show why our clients should prevail. But oftentimes saying those facts are, are things that create these wounds that are never healed, that, that, that are more than just wounds for the person personally. It's wounds to the continued relationship. Absolutely. And I think that um, the literature, the research shows that the wounds that come through that process in the courtroom sometimes affect the children in how they face their future mates and partners, how they raise their own children and what the family dynamic looks like for them 
for generations to come. That is so true. I think family law is one of the unique, the unique practices of law that affects people generationally. I mean, we have a generational impact on our clients because how we teach them and talk to them about, you know, interacting with their co-parent post-divorce is really essential for their children's mental health, their children's success, right? So if we tell them, hey, slash and burn, we're going to burn the damn barn to the ground. You know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, kill everybody who's in front of us. That doesn't help when their kids are graduating from high school and they both need to go to the session, the ceremony doesn't help when their kids get married, when their kids have kids, you know, and that continued relationship that doesn't ever stop, you know? So I, I, I do really agree with you that, you know, crafting your own future is something that people really have to um, have to consider as a important component of the family law process. Mediation does something even, uh, I think that it provides a greater opportunity to customize the solution to the, for example, holiday traditions of a family or uh, what goals parents had for their children when they decided to have a family. And in the courtroom setting, the court is limited by uh, the family code and Texas procedural and evidentiary law, as well as case law uh, from the appellate courts. And essentially, in mediation, the parties can do anything that isn't a violation of public policy. And as the guardian of the fairness of the process, as a mediator, I'm not going to allow those conversations to go in the wrong direction. In other words, stepping into the arena where uh, they are violating public policy or doing something the courts could not approve uh, for legal reasons. Uh, so it gives a wide range of brainstorming and customizing type of opportunities for families uh, to move to that next step with some confidence and predictability and you know, really focusing on what is important to the litigants themselves. And what's important to the children, right? Okay. If the kids are used to going to grandma's house, uh, you know, Christmas Eve night, then, you know, the divorce really shouldn't have to affect that if the parties can agree, if that's important, yeah. you know? And and I want to say, too, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. When you go to court, would you agree with me that, you know, these presumptions that exist in the law about visitation, you know, conservatorship rights, those sorts of those sorts of things are almost cookie cutters that are applied yes. universally because the legislature said this is what we think is appropriate. But in in, you know, as applied to the particular case, it may not be appropriate, but you're probably not going to get anything but that if you go to trial. You're correct. And I think. For lawyers, we have a unique obligation to explain that to clients. You know, this is where, you know, this is where I think lawyering is really important during the mediation process. What do you think about that? I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, I am always um, reluctant to hear lawyers and, and maybe astonished is a better word to hear lawyers say, well, that'll never happen in the courtroom or uh, that person can't get that. The judge will never do this. I guarantee you this isn't going to happen because, uh, uh, you know, Shannon, you and I are the old timers in our business right now. And we have, we have seen things that we never thought we would see. Um, 
Again, what happens in the courtroom is rarely a clear victory for either side. And I think that um, as a mediator, I am poised to step in that gap at times when a whether it's someone who is overstating their case for their client or trying to embolden their client to uh, be confident in making decisions in mediation. Sometimes if it's an oversell, I will say something. uh, I can be blunt and I can also be a little more of a, a soft glove response on that. But I mean, essentially my thought is, Are you willing to bet your law license that the guarantee you're making is going to happen in the courtroom? And I never I would never embarrass a lawyer in front of their client. But I may pull a lawyer out and say, how sure are you? How confident are you, Miss Lawyer or Mr. Lawyer, that you're going to deliver that promise in front of a judge that you have no control over? Mm-hmm. And and I'll say this too. Would do you find Linda in 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 seeing these lawyers who may be posturing, who may be wanting to embolden their client, who may be overselling the case because that's what keeps them retained, right? Uh, you know, but of course, no, not not straight talk and honest advice, Borman. I can tell you that no, absolutely not. not. But um, but but do you find that um, the ones who do that are typically ones who aren't always in the family law arena, who aren't, you know, the family law lawyers that do this day in, day out? You are uh, correct in that. I mean, I um, mediate all over the state and uh, Zoom has certainly changed how we mediate and enlarged uh, the, the number of folks we see in the locations. And uh, many times I think that if you get a general practitioner who may do primarily a different type of law other than family law, there is not that context that allows them to really um, understand how a family judge or another family lawyer might approach the case. Again, you know, I would never uh, in any way put someone down or uh, question their choices as lawyers in a room. But that is a conversation that I may have in my office with them about, let's try something. I know if you go to the courtroom, you can air all of those things. You can present those theories or defenses uh, if we don't get this settled. But just for today, what would it be like, client or lawyer, to set aside all of these things that we have come as lawyers to believe is our job, when in fact, let's just explore and see what the parties can come up with. Because I'm not, as mediator, I'm not replacing the judge. Instead, I'm the shepherd of the fairness of the process, and I want everyone to have an opportunity for their say and to talk about their ideas and what's important to them, because often what the clients tell you or don't tell you uh, as mediator gives me all kinds of ideas about how to approach a solution or a suggestion of an approach that maybe they haven't thought about. 
Well, and you know, you do get both sides. So can you talk to my viewers about kind of what is unique about mediation in your role? So if I tell you, if I spill my guts in my room, are you going to go and tell the other side about my gut spilling? And then are you going to tell me when they spill their guts? So explain that to the, to the viewers. Um, the Supreme Court of Texas has set a, uh, a group of rules. We call them the ethical guidelines for mediators. And we are duty bound to adhere to those principles. And one of the primary ones is the confidentiality of mediation. So uh, typically when I have husband and lawyer in one room, wife and her lawyer in another room, everything that is discussed is confidential. Now, obviously, they're going to have to give me some authority. And we talk about that in honest terms. You've shared this with me, Mr. So-and-so. May I now share that in the other room to help your wife and her lawyer understand what your position is? And that that perspective is so different. Yeah, you're the only one who knows both of those both of those stories. Yes. And so, you know, after you hear from one side, these, these are my fears, these are my concerns, these are my worries, this is why, this is my logic. And they say, and the bottom line is this is the this is the offer I want you to convey without all that context. Then you go to the other side and they tell you their position, their fears, their worries, their thought process, and they give you a counter offer. You are the in that unique per- position to see both of those contexts and be able to create a solution or at least maybe suggest some things that neither party or lawyer could come up with without you. Well, there are two really interesting dynamics that happens as I'm going back and forth between the rooms. One is that it is human nature when you don't have accurate or full information to fill in those holes in the story or to fill in those gaps with the worst possible uh, interpretation of what should be at play. So if, you know, you no longer are talking to your spouse and uh, children are saying something you don't understand instead of picking up the phone and calling your soon-to-be ex and saying, hey, Johnny told me this. What does that really mean? Uh, instead, the human nature is to fill it in. Oh, well, you know, they're doing inappropriate things or, you know, the human mind plays games with you. And uh, I think that that's especially true in the context of folks going through a change in their a family relationship. You you just suspect the worst and trust is gone or you wouldn't be getting a divorce. But the second piece of that is sometimes in hearing what both parties are thinking separately, it helps me identify a bridge that I can suggest not dictating them, you need to do this, that, and the other, because that's not my job. But instead, it gives me the chance to say to them, have you thought about what it might look like if whatever? Or what ideas do you have that might help your co-parent feel more comfortable that you're a safe, appropriate parent? So in other words, I try to intuitively ask questions that would assist the parties in coming up with their own solution. Because they're the ones that know what they can live with and and how to make that workable. And it's a skilled mediator, I think, who can make those suggestions or try to enlarge someone's thought process without divulging the issues in the other room or the concerns in the other room. 
It is a skill set, and and I work on it every day. Uh, at this point in my career, I've done over four thousand family law mediations, and um, you know, I I know mediators who keep score. Well, I've settled ninety three point two five percent of all my mediations. I, I think that's crazy. Uh, I, instead, I think every mediation where there is a meaningful conversation and the input of the parties results in each side better understanding their opponent, for lack of a better word, is a successful mediation. I totally agree. Totally. I mean, it's almost as though mediation is kind of a discovery process in and of itself. You know, you're learning really what are the motivations, what are the what are the concerns, what are the offers that they make, what are the things that they are willing to concede to kind of give you an idea of what are their priorities. And I, I, I totally agree. Well, and, you know, you will always see situations where people say, well, I don't want to see my spouse. I don't want to even, you know, pass them in the hallway. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to sit at a table with them. And I'm like, why would you not want to know more about your party opponent in this case? Why would you not want to sit down and have that conversation? Because, you know, when the judge pounds the gavel and you're divorced, you are not going to have your lawyer by your side. You're not going to have the judge there calling the balls and strikes. Instead, if you don't develop the skills now and the framework within which to operate, the same problems you have before and leading into the litigation is going to continue afterwards. That is particularly true in, in cases with children who are little, right? I mean, if you don't learn how to talk, then you are dooming them to, to really a misery of existence. You know, Linda, one thing you mentioned earlier was how Zoom um, has kind of changed the dynamic of, or the, I guess, the enlarged your practice area. Can, can you tell me more how Zoom has changed the culture or the, the way you, you do mediations and the way you're able to solve these ty- types of issues? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, when, I, I guess, pre-COVID, there were thoughts and in professional circles at continuing ed conferences and uh, research projects, there was a lot of discussion about why can't we mediate online? Well, you know, and and the I would say the more traditional practitioners like myself were very resistant to that. And suddenly we get to 2019 and we have no choice. I can tell you that it was a fear of the process, and I think that that makes uh, myself and others in my shoes as guilty as the litigants are, are of fearing the unknown when, in fact, once we got into it, there are some really uh, practical benefits of mediating electronically or remotely. I mean, I uh, do mediate a number of Child Protective Services cases, and the staffing on those cases can be as many as 15 or 20 people in a mediation at a time. And that allows me, doing so by Zoom allows me to manage those personalities and those different points of view uh, in groups and breakout rooms. And I mean, it has uh, allowed me to accept cases uh, in Texas and outside of Texas. Uh, mediating litigants. Not everyone can afford to come to Texas 
uh, you know, mom might be living in Texas and dad might be living in Florida. So the, the even the travel as an access to justice type of issue, uh, Zoom has changed that dramatically so that people who are having conflicts don't um, unnecessarily utilize all of their financial resources trying to get a solution to a problem by running back and forth up and down the highway or on a plane. So I think it's given a better access to justice for people. And I uh, find at least half of my cases now, a lot of folks prefer to come back to a traditional construct where we all meet in one location and mediate. But at least half of my cases, one side or both are on uh, remotely. Technically, how does that work? So when we're at your office in, you know, in person, the lawyer and the client are in one room, the other client and the lawyer are in another room and you go room to room back and forth, kind of, you know, a la Henry Kissinger in the Middle East, right? So how is it that it works online um, because people mostly see, okay, a Zoom call, you have all the little boxes of people. How does that work? Right. There is a feature called breakout rooms and I can uh, staff or uh, put the participants in those rooms as I choose. Typically, if I have one side here and one side on Zoom, then they, uh, the parties who are here in person are at the, a more remote location from my personal office. So they're in the conference room down the hall. Uh, and then the person participating remotely, I'll have that person and their lawyer because they're typically in two different locations. I mean, Shannon, it could be you uh, on camera just like now and your client right next to you, but that person may be in Alaska, had that recently on a case. So uh, when I'm visiting with you all, it's secure. It's confidential. No one can hear what is going on, what we're discussing. And it's just as though I'm physically sitting in the same room as you, but we're doing it by electronic means. Using my administrative pad here, I can move the people who are participating in the mediation from room to room as I need to. If I want everyone, lawyers and clients and myself to meet together, to go over some ground rules or to talk about specific things that I see we're very close to an agreement, but we need some input from both clients. And I think it would be helpful for the interface to occur. I'm going to put us all in a room together. I mean, it is literally, um, I, I have the ability to move folks back and forth from these electronic meeting rooms in any way I want to. And when I'm for example, if I'm in meeting with uh, you and your client in a breakout room, Shanna, then the other attorney and her client will be in a separate breakout room that we can't hear. They can't hear us. And, and uh, they could be communicating in that other breakout room just as though they were truly in there working. And I try to give, I know this is going to sound, this is my old school teacher uh, uh, background. Uh, I'll say, well, while I'm over meeting with Shanna and her client, so-and-so, I would like you and your client to try to prioritize and I give them some things to work on. So they're not just sitting there moving further away from settlement, but they are working on an issue that will bring them closer to a settlement. Well, and I'll say this too, you know, I, I know I've been in, in mediation before where the longer it takes you with the other side, 
I'll be in the room with the client. Why is it taking so long? Why is it taking so long? I bet they're just arguing about this. So they, they start attributing bad motives to what's going on in the other room. They start these, this, this mental, this mental game where they're saying, well, of course, you know, we're never going to reach an agreement. The other side's being so unreasonable because it's taking so long. And why is it taking so long? And that then also kind of makes it go backwards in terms of progress. And what I try to tell people who ask that very question, you know, why is it taking so long in the other room? And I, I, you know, I find that the person who files the divorce, the petitioner, has emotionally gone through the grief and the uh, process of coming to terms with their decision and planning for the future at a much more accelerated rate than the other side who perhaps didn't want the divorce or uh, wasn't expecting it to occur. So they hadn't really thought through what the future is going to look like. So all of these fears and these hurt feelings and um, I don't know, it's just it's, sometimes it takes longer to process for some litigants than it does others. And I think an important part of of the mediation process is to allow the litigants themselves, not lawyer posturing, allow the litigants to express their hurt, their disillusionment, uh, their fears for the future, because having someone sit across the table from them like I do and hear their pain and acknowledge it and validate their right to have those feelings is the most important piece of the whole process. But that's exactly true, Linda. You know, each par- each party is in such a different emotional place that your input here and in kind of helping guide them get to the place where the other party is in, you know, the, the emotional place, except that the divorce is going to happen, except that this is actually going to be something that they need to address rather than put their head in the sand. You know, those, those principles are something that really do fall heavily on your shoulders. I try to manage the time as fairly as possible, but because it does sometimes take longer, I just ask that the other side who finds themselves sitting there working on little homework items that I left for them to talk about in my absence uh, will be patient because, yeah, I'm not going to, to unnecessarily delay getting back and forth between the rooms. Instead, uh, I hope the litigants, I, I know the lawyer, I believe the lawyers do, trust me to move this along because we have limited window of opportunity. Most times we're uh, in a four hour block or if we have a an eight hour block, there's a lot more flexibility there uh, as far as how fast and at what pace to push that conversation. But some people just take longer to reach the same conclusions that they're uh, uh, their spouse or their their partner uh, has reached mm-hmm. a long time mm-hmm. ago. The other day I had a mediation with you and I think you were in our room for maybe one fifth of the time. And I know I kept trying to talk my client down off of, you know, why are we not agreeing? Why, why is she over there? Why is it taking so long? And, you know, of course, I'm just like, you know, Linda's over there because Linda needs to be over there. You know, just just be patient. You know, here, let's talk about this now, right? Let's talk about this possible solution. You know, what if they come back with this? You know, what would you do? Let's run some more numbers, you know, just kind of keep them almost, um, uh, keep their mind occupied to keep them away from generating these negative motivations. Yeah. Scenarios. Right. right. 
Yes. So, yes. so Linda, kind of in conclusion, what do you think um, a litigant who's coming into court, coming into mediation to to you know avoid a court situation? What do you think? What advice would you give to them to to best prepare um, for a mediation session? I uh, was asked recently by the State Bar of Texas to train uh, professional development uh, webcast where they set the title as being the top 10 mistakes mediators wish litigants wouldn't make. Uh, I, I wanted to switch that. I tend to see things as uh, the glass is half full rather than half empty. And I'm going to keep pouring water to encourage the fullness of the glass. So I, I wanted to call it instead the top 10 things mediators wish lawyers and clients would do before they arrive at the mediation location. So that's your exact question. And I kind of broke it down into things such as, number one, read my policies. I have put a lot of time and thought into streamlining the process and creating uh, expectations of predictability and, and uh, process for the litigants by written policies. Read those before you come. Uh, I want the client to meet with the attorney and talk about their goals, talk about their fears, know what their game plan is, and to honestly assess what their strengths and weaknesses are before they come to mediation, because I'm going to ask that question. I don't want to hear what you think your strongest argument is. I want to hear about, ma'am, what do you think your weakest argument is? Or, sir, what is the other side's strongest argument? Because if you can honestly evaluate where you are as the litigant, then you can more honestly assess where the compromises can come. And that generates solutions. So, you know, there are some things you can do to plan and prepare at, ahead of time. Uh, as far as lawyers go, I always want my lawyers to talk to one another on the phone. I think um, technology has replaced conversation for lawyers as well as litigants and uh, emails and text messages and those types of things have pulled us away from the type of dialogue you and I are having here today. And I think there is a lot of trust building and uh professional and ethical uh, upliftingness that we can have between us as professionals if we'll just make that effort to pick up the phone and, and talk to somebody. And I think that's a real, it, it just has, it, it has gone away as many social graces have, like written letters. We no longer handwrite letters. And I understand that's a time and a, a advancement technologically that is good for us, but there were also some benefits of those processes that we've now lost. Well, that is great advice, Linda. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you giving me your wisdom, your time, your perspective, and I appreciate it for our viewers, most, most importantly. Well, you're certainly welcome, and uh, don't be afraid to, to talk. Have that conversation. Figure out if the solution can be fixed between the, self, the parties themselves rather than going to a stranger. That's right. That is so right. Thanks so much, Linda, again. Mm -hmm.